This is the Elevate Podcast, where we have conversations to elevate your health, relationships, and soul. I'm Amanda Noga. I'm a yoga and Ayurveda practitioner, and each week I'm joined by my co-host, holistic health coach, Sarah Hopkins. So let's dive into this week's episode. Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Elevate Podcast. It's Amanda here. And today we are talking about birth. And those of you that are subscribed to the podcast will have listened to both Sarah and I's personal birth stories. But in this episode, we're going to talk about birth more broadly. So, you know, it's a topic that I've been obsessed with since I was like (laughs) 20, you know, like way before it was even on my personal radar for having a baby. But I just think the whole process is truly fascinating and I thought this obsession would go away after having a baby but it it seems to have stuck around so the perspective that we're kind of coming from or that I'm coming from is that birth is a transformational rite of passage and it will transform you no matter what kind of birth you wind up having whether that's a home birth free birth natural birth vaginal birth hospital birth intervention full birth cesarean section no matter what you're going to be changed for better or for worse you know it can be this empowering experience or it can be a traumatic experience and it can be a bit of both so there's a lot to get into today we yeah hopefully we can keep it tight and get through (laughs) all of the stuff that we want to talk about but Sarah over the last you know like what 10 years you worked with hundreds of pregnant women and so what are you seeing typically as kind of a trend in the people that you're working with yeah and I think you know to add to what you've said I think what we're seeing as a trend just generally culturally and societally and certainly um, more profoundly in all industrialized cultures is the industrialization of birth so all the medicalization of birth and I did look at some statistics, which I'll roll off later about um, C-sections and things like that. But just anecdotally, it's actually been nearly nine years that I've been working with hundreds and hundreds of pregnant women and then, you know, subsequently hearing so many of their birth stories. Um, and, you know, I wasn't that interested in birth before I conceived Rafa. Like, I... I think I started to become more interested in it as I started to work with pregnant women, but it probably was my own pregnancy journey that really sort of expedited that process for me and I started to really learn and understand. Maybe it was a bit before that because I think I was talking about birth and, you know, the risks of intervention in terms of birth when I was running those fertility workshops at your yoga studio and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So maybe it was prior to that, but I guess as soon as I was interested in fertility, I also became interested in birth and how we can help that to be as healthy as possible, really. Um, And I guess, you know, a lot of what I want to share today is anecdotally based on my experience of what my pregnant clients have been exposed to, because I had a very, and we've spoken about this before, I don't know if we've spoken about it on the pod, but you and I have certainly spoken about it. I had a pretty drama-free birth and I had a a birth that was 
pretty low intervention that was vaginal that didn't have any um, medication and, like I said, didn't really have much intervention. And so, and as it turns out, my birth experience is actually quite unique. And, mm-hmm. you know, I would say just to pull numbers out of nowhere, really thin air, but to try and sort of guesstimate that, you know, of everyone I know and of, you know, most of my clients, it would be in the high 90s that are having a birth that has some sort of intervention. And the grooming of that intervention, which we can sort of explore in more detail in a minute, but the preparation by the, you know, medical institutions starts to happen from the day that they go to see their GP and get a confirmation that they're pregnant. (laughs) And so, and I have some, you know, I guess hypotheses now or ideas about like what that grooming looks like. And, And I actually try really hard to educate my clients about what the next step is going to be like this is a this is a high risk or you know your iron's too low and there's all these things and we can go through some of that but most women are being groomed from the moment that they conceive that they're probably not going to be capable of having just a normal drama-free natural labor that they're going to need to be hospitalised and need to be intervened with in some way to have a baby. And I think what's important to recognise just straight off the bat is that the medical system and hospitals are a business model. They are interested in making money and more commonly than not, especially when it comes to pregnancy and birth, that is at the cost of mother and baby, not necessarily for the benefit of mother and baby. And so as soon as we rock up at the doctor's office wanting a confirmation that we are pregnant, which, by the way, if you're not getting your periods anymore and you start growing a belly, (laughs) you're probably pregnant, (laughs) you know? So it's, it's from that very first visit, and, you know, we can talk about ultrasounds, which I think it's important too, that we start to get ushered down this road of, yeah, in, into the medical pipeline, which, you know, if you are, um, well, if you're, if you're anyone, if you're having a baby for the first time or the fifth time, you, you want to do the right thing and you want to do what is best for your baby, right? That's what we all want. And... I think it's become synonymous that going to the doctor is doing the right thing, but we have to question why we think that and why we place our our certainty in what another person, a doctor, is telling us about our own body and our own baby. You know, if we're externalising that trust and that responsibility straight off the bat, it's only going to continue as we grow more vulnerable and more pregnant. Totally. Uh, it's totally. Yeah. And, you know, I have had so many pregnant clients that I try and do it very early. So usually within the first couple of weeks of them discovering that they're pregnant, I try and have the birth conversation with them, which seems so um, early to be having that conversation. But I am astounded by how many of my pregnant clients, newly pregnant clients, didn't know that there were any options other than doctor, 
referral for obstetrician into a private hospital that they've been paying private health for because that's what they all their friends did and that's what they thought it was to do that's what you get advertised that's to what, do that's what you do like you go to the doctor you get an obstetrician you go see the obstetrician the whole way through your pregnancy usually end up with a c-section and baby at the end like and I explain oh there's other options for you there's a midwife there's home birth there's the birthing center there's other paths there's a public hospital where you can still be cared for by a midwife and um, have a birthing suite and, and, and try for the vaginal labour. You know, there's a female-led care that doesn't have to be an obstetrician. There's all these other options and they have no idea about that and you can guarantee that the doctor is not telling them any of that. Of course, and like you he said, wants the paycheck. Yeah. And I, my stepsister, so her father, um, he is a an obstetrician and I remember her telling me that he told her that he would get a kickback like a financial kickback like a good one for every c-section so he was being financially yeah he was being financially incentivized as an obstetrician for every c-section delivery that he managed to get over the course of his you know shift so I just want to say like this isn't too bad out obstetricians but it's the number of unnecessary interventions that happen throughout pregnancy and throughout labour and then, yes. you know, that wind up as caesarean sections or, you know, other type of interventions, that is the big problem. And it's, exactly. it's not to say that obstetricians are, you know, evil or shouldn't be no. around or anything, but it's just putting that um, that model in its rightful place which is really the bare minimum of the time and what's interesting in our culture which you know it doesn't happen in other places around the world but you know predominantly in the developed world we don't bear witness to birth until it's us doing the birthing you know it's Mm. very rare to have seen another birth in person or you know now we might see it on youtube if we're if we're brave um but most people's exposure to birth, most women's exposure to birth is what we see on TV and mm. movies, which of course is totally inaccurate, dramatised and no wonder people are scared. Whereas well, and in it places... also, mm, go ahead. sorry, it also sort of represents that medicalization because it's always like pushing her, rushing in the car, pushing her in the wheelchair through in a brightly lit room where she's lying on her back with her legs spread apart and a bunch of doctors around her and she's pushing and screaming and you know no wonder it it looks scary but that's what it looks like as well like it's it's reinforcing the expectation around I go to the hospital I lie on my back (laughs) you know maybe they um anesthetize part of my spine and then I push the baby out you know it is it's it mostly culturally it's reflected to us as really painful, dramatic and in a hospital. Mm -hmm. And so what we see, like literally what we perceive through our eyes and our brains from the outside world is what we internalise to be true and what we then believe is going to happen to us. Like if we're not exposed to other types of birth, then we, we don't have any context to believe that that is a possibility, right? Yeah. And in places like 
Bali or India or, you know, loads of other places around the world, South America. And, you know, maybe back in the day, well, at least not for the last hundred years in the West, but it's in those other places like Bali and India, like I was saying, that you will see other women in your community birth and you'll be maybe a part of the process, you know, and that just we've we've lost that and that's that's a big loss i think i think that's really mm. really important to yeah to see birth and to see all different types of birth and to be supported by other women that was the original midwifery you know the gathering around of wise women in the community and it's no coincidence that midwifery has been really pushed to the sidelines at least you know what I would say like traditional midwifery that's that's women-led and not medicalized that has been totally pushed out of hospitals and what a mm. midwife's job now within a hospital setting is yeah pretty much adhering to all of the same um, parameters that the hospital requires so a midwife working in the system is not really able to facilitate a normal natural birth so easily because you're still in the system, right? She still has to tick all the boxes, even if she's an amazing midwife. 100%. And, you know, it's, it's really rare for obstetricians and, and some midwives. It's really rare that they've actually witnessed a natural intervention-free birth. Totally. Most doctors have not seen that. And why would they? Like, that's not their job. <laughs> their job is to perform surgery. Mm. And... It starts way back, you know, like 100 years ago in the 20s, they were doing, I'm sure you've heard of this, Sarah, like the twilight sleep birth. Yes, I have heard of this. Where, so this is what, like our grandmothers, maybe great-grandmothers? I think great-grandmothers maybe. Era, yeah. So, so maybe like four generations back, we've been on the receiving end of interrupted birth or medicalized birth in the west mm. or in developed countries i should say and so they would totally drug the mother make essentially put her in a um like unconscious like state basically general anesthetic pretty yeah. much yeah you're you're under and kind of tie down if you see the images of what they used to do they used to tie down the hands um and kind of like a straight jacket sort of thing around the shoulders and then the feet up in stirrups. And, yeah, and the, and the woman passes out. And the body, you know, for the most part does its thing, mm. pushes out the baby, but she has no recollection of it. It doesn't take the pain away necessarily. She still experiences that trauma from birthing in that, in that way, you know, in a straight jacket on your back. But the thing is you don't remember it. So... That's pretty horrific and that was kind of the start of the medicalization of birth back in like, yeah, like I said, like around the 20s, early 1900s. But then in like the 60s and 70s, that's when home birth kind of had a bit of a resurgence and people started questioning a little bit more and I guess that's when the divide started happening. But what we can see is that the hospital kind of pathway has just become even wider and stronger and you know all of the different ways that we're ushered into that that 
pipeline from the very beginning of our pregnancy journey. It's pretty hard to escape. I remember even when I um, was in Australia, I went for a blood test when I was in my first trimester. And do you remember, I probably talked about this in the first trimester episode way back, but she wanted, the doctor wanted me to do a, was it a colonoscopy? Yeah, that's right. Yes, it was. Like, seriously, she wanted me to have this procedure in early pregnancy (laughs) because my iron was low and she wanted to do some investigating about why that might be. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. I know. I remember remember you asking me, you know, or telling me, and I was like, uh, no, (laughs) just just no. Um, You were a bit more vocal than that. (laughs) Um, Well, if we look at some statistics, so currently, and this is, I think, 2018, so our C-section rates are one of the highest globally, and Australia sits at about 34%. Mm -hmm. Um, Iceland, which is a pretty equivalent country to us sort of demographically, um, culturally, they have a C-section rate of 15%. And the World Health Organization recommends a, a, a rate no higher than ten to fifteen percent. So our rate, yeah, is and that's 34%. let's just say that that's what the World Health Organization says. So take that with a grain of salt. <laughs> Other statistics say that the cesarean rate, you know, the real cesarean rate that's necessary, is about four percent. Oh. Of course, but, you know, if you look at what our C-section rates are, they're just so much higher than even like an overstated WHO recommendation. Totally. So Australia sits around 34%, which is on par with the US US. and China and other developed countries. But this is like interestingly in private hospitals in Australia, that sits around 45%. That does not surprise me even slightly. So, cha-ching! <laughs> and exactly. the Perth, the city where both you and I are from, Sarah, actually has the highest cesarean rate in the whole country. Yes, and I think it comes out of St John of God as well. Yeah, the- and I guess the thing to remember is if you rock up at a doctor's office or, you know, a hospital, it's like if you go to the Church of Christian you're going to get preached about Jesus. If you go to the hospital, you're going to get preached about why you need all these interventions and technological, yeah, interruptions into the birthing process. And we shouldn't expect anything less. Why would we Mm. expect that we're going to go to the hospital and they're going to encourage us to have a natural birth without using any of their paraphernalia? Yeah, 100%. That's not what they're interested in. No. And, you know, I think that comes back to the the sort of key underlying theme or thought process is that birth is and has been for millennia just a natural process, a natural physiological process. It's probably to a degree intuitively, you know, I mean, certainly women have been doing it that have never done it before without the confines of a hospital before we even thought of hospitals. So, you know, without even of, any education. No. So the act of birth is innate and it's a, it's a natural physiological process and now the act of birth has been 
turned into a medical condition that needs to be treated. There's pregnancy and birth, and I think we've probably alluded to this in some of our other pregnancy ep- episodes, but it's something it's something wrong with you. It's a medical condition. It's not, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's treated like that. Like as soon as you are pregnant, they're putting you into that system. Oh, okay, we have to track you. We have to watch you. We have to give you ultrasounds. We have to test your blood. And and most of the time, like I said at the beginning, the grooming starts. Oh, this is wrong. That's wrong. Oh, we need to the check this. The pathologizing of exactly. pregnancy. Yes, and it's like, and that's what medical professionals are trained to look for. They're trained to look for pathologies, even when there might, maybe isn't one. And yes, we also like. I just want to say this is not like if if you're a birth worker or a nurse or a midwife or anything like that. It's I know that most people working in the field are well intentioned. It's of not course. about the person, or it's about the system. It's the system, and it's it's all just sort of accidentally happened over time it's not some great conspiracy although I know that there's like radical feminists that say that it's you know the patriarchy and it's suppression of women and taking away that power that birthing gives them and there's lots of you know like sort of philosophical philosophical paths that we could walk down and maybe you know maybe some of that is some subconscious sort of cultural conditioning over time but it's all sort of just like a series of accidental, like let's try and reduce infant mortality here and, you know, let's... Well, it's a bunch um, of experiments. Like the obstetric model do not have a good history when it comes to these new uh, drugs or new procedures. Usually they wind up with a lot of, you know, there's, there's so many examples that I could go through, but, you know, when a new drug is introduced to maybe induce labour or to... Um, reduce bleeding or whatever the drug might be for there's usually a a lot of fallout before that experiment because you know how else do you experiment on pregnant women unless they're pregnant so it's yeah the history of obstetrics is rife with bad bad science and bad decisions I'm just laughing as well because you when you're talking about the medical condition part I remember when I was flying from from Australia to Bali and I was obviously pregnant at this point I was in my third trimester and the air hostess is that what we're supposed to call them now flight attendant um (laughs) was saying to me miss do you have a medical condition and I was like no what's wrong like do I look like I have a medical condition? And it w- literally was going over my head for like 10 minutes and she just kept asking me like, do you have a medical condition? I'm like, no, no, no. And then I realised, oh, she's referring to my belly. That's the medical <laughs> condition. <laughs> my huge pregnant belly. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my gosh. But, yeah. Hello, it's Sarah here. And I'm just briefly interrupting this episode to tell you a little bit more about what I offer. So I've worked with literally hundreds and hundreds of women, helping them transform their health, hormones, fertility, and more. And I absolutely love working one-on-one with women because we're all uniquely different. So if you're interested in learning more about coaching with me, or if you're ready to book an initial consultation, you'll find the link in the show notes. I look forward to hearing from you.
so let's talk about the grooming and the interventions maybe trimester by trimester and talk about sort of that cascade of intervention and, and what happens and how it happens because I, I feel like what I would like people to understand is that there is other options for them if they are pregnant and if they are thinking about having babies in the future and to understand the cascade of, of intervention and understand how they do sort of medicalize something that's really natural I think is is a really important part of understanding that and learning that there's a new way and that there's a different way so old way the original way yeah the old school way so I mean yeah the cascade of interventions is something that Dr Sarah Buckley talks about which is kind of like through the labor but like you said there's a lot of setup that happens during pregnancy that result in those interventions happening and so I guess one of the first things that's happened is we get given a due date which in itself is for most people we just take it as really exciting and um yeah something to like grab a hold of you know at a time when early pregnancy everything's kind of like up in the air a little bit But this due date and the way that it's calculated is problematic in itself. Do you want to talk about that for a second? I remember you spoke a little bit about it in our first trimester episode. But Oh, my God. Yes, I completely forgot about this, but this is such an important sort of first step. So for the most part, even when it's an IVF baby and they know – exactly when they created the embryo and then when they transferred that embryo, which means that they know like date of gestation, date of conception, all of that stuff. They, the way that they calculate your due date is they, they take the last, the first day of your last period. So if you have a a 28 day cycle, they're adding two weeks on to your pregnancy where you weren't pregnant. So if you conceived on the day you ovulated, which is the day 14, they're going to take your conception date as two weeks prior to that. Which so you're already two weeks ahead of schedule. So someone, so someone who goes in like when they don't get their period, so they're basically two weeks pregnant, they've had a baby growing inside of them or the embryo growing inside of them for literally two weeks at that point will be told that they're four weeks pregnant. Yeah. And so that's fine. That's great until you get to the other end of that cycle, the pointy end. And actually, I mean, again, this is anecdotal experience with hundreds and hundreds of women that are mainly choosing private health and going into those private hospitals. Those obstetricians are getting antsy at about 38 weeks now which actually means like 36 weeks, like, Mm. you know, and if a gestational period can be up to 42 weeks. and that's the global average, 42 weeks. Okay, amazing. So, you know, most hospitals are, are getting antsy at 40 weeks. So you're on the clock at 40 weeks. They're talking about potential... Um, induction. I personally, from hundreds and hundreds of clients, see that that's earlier for the um, the private hospitals. They're keen to get the babies out earlier, but let's just work on the public hospital system. If they're starting to, you know, 
worry and talk about intervention at 40 weeks. Well, you're not 40 weeks. You're actually 38 weeks. And if the average is 42 weeks, you've got another four weeks of gestation. You've got another month. Like, it's... Just chill out, Mama. But the thing is, and, and look, there's so many other stages and we'll go through those stages, but, you know, what happens is... If and again, like in in the private system, they are you know at 38 weeks, they're like, oh, you know, it's already starting to get late or whatever the reasons that they're using, and then they're starting to have that continuing conversation that usually they've already alluded to in many other appointments because at that point you're seeing obstetrician very regularly. Exactly, and they're talking about induction. Yeah, so. The old reason that was commonly given was that, oh, the baby's getting really big. You're not going to be able to push it out if it gets any bigger, right? Yes. Which is just ludicrous in itself. Your body doesn't make a baby that's too big for your pelvis. That just doesn't happen. But the reason that I'm hearing more and more now is about low fluid, low amniotic fluid. It seems to be the new kind of hot reason that's given to, um, yeah, induce labour. And look, I mean, this is jumping ahead, but I have to tell you about my hypothesis about this sort of grooming of birth. So what I have worked out over the last nine years is that, so back probably 10, 15 years ago, C-sections were still, I suppose, in inverted commas, trendy for some, you know, sort of probably more your middle upper class demographics like too posh to push all of that silly stuff so c-sections were trendier and so it was an easier sell for the obstetricians to like convince their clientele about c-sections but then you know the the evidence was actually just overwhelmingly um problematic in terms of the overall outcomes for mums that had c-sections like you know, and we should talk about this enough, we won't do it now, but there's so many issues, including like weight increase rates of diabetes and obesity in adults that are born to C-section, plus all of the problems for the mum. So mums started cluing up to this and they started going, oh, actually, I don't think I want a C-section. And so in the last, probably, you know, during the, certainly during the time that I've been working with so many pregnant women, women are sort of like, oh, I would like one because I don't want to damage my vagina or whatever it might be. But I also, I know that that's not good for my baby. And of course, all our, you know, maternal instincts are just set up to want the best for our baby. So that, so even if a lot of them are, in inverted commas, too posh to push, they really don't want to set themselves up for anything but the best for their baby. So they are leaning away from a C-section. So what all of the obstetricians, like I would say 100% of the obstetricians are doing now certainly with every single client that I've worked with that goes that private medical route, is that they are grooming their um, clients, their pregnant clients for induction. And like coming back to what you said, it's different reasons like the baby's too big or um, the heart rate variability has changed on one day, which by the way, that can change, you know, moment to moment or whatever the reason might be. But over time, they will groom them for induction and eventually at about 38 weeks which is actually six or maybe 39 which is 37 weeks they'll tell them xyz we're worried about i think we should induce you now the thing about the inductions is it's okay you're having a vaginal birth so the mum is okay with that because she didn't want the c-section so she feels comforted by that and she doesn't mind having 
an induction. So she feels okay. The obstetrician, you know, it feels good because he's like, yes, I don't want you to have a C-section and everyone's feeling good. But ultimately what happens is the induction, you know, doesn't allow One you One induction to have, needs to another. Well, the induction doesn't allow you to have that beautiful flow of contraction and break. And so you end up in excruciating pain and then the flow of intervention happens that the vast majority of women that do end up induced, most certainly most end up with an epidural because it's so extremely painful, but a very high percentage of those women also end up with a C-section anyway. So the obstetricians are actually getting the C-section birth. And to add to that, they're still able to, so C-sections were the preferred option of the obstetrician because if I can just you know, slot all of my births into between nine and five, then I don't have to work night shift. I don't have to be inconvenienced by babies coming on their timeline. But now with the induction, they can still do that because if they schedule all their inductions for the first half of the day, you're also on the clock once you get induced. So they'll all be done by like seven o'clock, let's say. So that, that well, there's helps. actually some interesting statistics that show that the majority of cesareans happen between happen at 4 p.m. Which is, <laughs> of course, you know, oh do. great, I'll be home it's for dinner. It's home time. It's home time. Or at 10 p.m., which is I don't want to be up all night. A hundred percent. So, but I, hold on, we've we've jumped ahead a little bit before we, we get into the nitty gritty about the cascade of interventions, which is really interesting. Let's rewind and talk about ultrasound for a minute because this has become so synonymous with pregnancy. It's, it's kind of um, a surprise to people to know that you don't actually need to get any ultrasounds if you don't want to. So if you haven't been pregnant before, you might not know that usually the first ultrasound that your doctor will advise you to have is around 12 weeks. But I know many, many friends and students who are encouraged actually to have it even earlier, like I'm talking eight weeks, which like Sarah said with the due date thing, that actually means you're only six weeks pregnant. But anyway, so that first one happens and then you will be, I think this is how it goes, but then you'll be recommended to have another scan at 20 weeks. and. If you're having any other additional testing or which there are loads on offer, like when you go to that first doctor's appointment, you'll be given a huge stack of pamphlets of all the different tests that you could opt into and things that you could check for, um, which, by the way, are not based on any um, improved outcomes for baby or for mum. You know, you can be you can find out the gender, all of these different things. And then you have a scan around 20 weeks, which is around the halfway point of the pregnancy. And then as things go on, especially if you're with an obstetrician, I don't really know what the schedule is, but, you know, just from friends and people that I know, as the end of the pregnancy becomes closer and closer, you'll be seeing the doctor maybe once a month or once a fortnight towards the end. And of course, you know, every time you go to the doctor's office, you want to have a scan and see the baby and check the baby. but I just want us to question for a moment why we're doing these things and if it's necessary. And, yeah, I mean, it's not to say that they are – well, there there is 
evidence to show that ultrasound is actually damaging. It destroys mammalian tissue. And, and it's radiation. It's radiation. Well, yeah, it it's, is. it's ultrasound. Yeah. It was yeah. first developed as a military tool to detect where other vessels were underwater in, like, naval warfare, I guess. And what's happening is I don't totally understand the exact science of it, but basically highly um, intensified sound waves are being blasted through your belly skin through the fluids, through the amniotic fluids, and then detecting where there's um, more dense tissue, right, in your belly, where your baby is, where its bones, where its muscles are, where its skull is, where its eyes are, all of that. And so it is, you know, kind of incredible when you think about it, but from that information of where the resistance is when the sound hits, we're able to make up an image of what that baby might look like inside the belly. And if you've seen the more like recent uh, 3D or 4D, 5D, whatever they're called, ultrasounds, it's pretty insane the type of image that they come up with. But we have to remember that's not actually a photo of our baby. That's a a technologically generated painting in a way of what the information is that's been gathered through that sound, the ultrasound. And so – Yeah, if you're interested in this ultrasound stuff, there is a lot of great research that I can link in the show notes, but we shouldn't go into each and every ultrasound thinking that it's totally benign and totally safe. It's not, and that's just a fact. That's not an opinion. Um, That's just something really important that we should know. And, you know, people would say, oh, but, you know, I had ultrasound when I was a baby and I'm fine. And, you know, most babies receive ultrasound and Everyone seems okay. Sure, but we don't actually know what, you know. It, the effects if are. We, exactly. We look because around that culture. Unethical. I wouldn't say everyone's fine. Most yeah, people are, are sick. Not fine. Most people are not fine. And the problem with a lot of stuff, and you alluded to this already, about pregnancy is that it's unethical to test on pregnant women. So there isn't much research done. It's just, oh, this seems to work on pregnant women, let's do it. Is There's not necessarily like really rigorous science done around pregnant women because it's unethical, you know. Yeah, and so what ends up happening is that the pregnant women as a whole in a country are experimented on and most people might seem fine. The babies might come out and seem fine. There might not be an immediate, um, you know, obvious result of the ultrasound but who's to say that that doesn't manifest 10 15 20 years down the track or even immediately we just do not know so I'd really implore anyone who's pregnant just to do your own research and you know if you feel like having an ultrasound is going to give you a certain amount of peace of mind or um I don't know whatever other reason that people might have that's That's fine, but something just to really reflect on and to remember that it's not 100% safe. And do we really need it? Like what what do we really need it for? And does it improve outcomes? And the answer to that is no, it doesn't improve outcomes. And 
you know, the other thing to say here is that, again, to talk about the medicalization of this process, well, it is a prerequisite if you are going to be part of any hospital program from the birthing centre through to all of the private you know, a bare minimum, for instance, for the birthing centre, which is where I went, was the two ultrasounds. So it was the 12-week So wait, ultrasound. you cannot opt out if you no. want to birth no. in the system. You can't exactly. opt out of that procedure. You have to. You have to have those. They're prerequisites for um, being part of the family birth centre program, midwifery program. Mm -hmm. And I'm certain that that's the same for the midwifery-based programs that you can access in the public hospitals as well. So well, yeah, um, they're all part of the same system. But that's minimal. Like that's not a lot of um, that's not a lot of ultrasound. And again, to come back to that super um, highly industrialized private sector, which I would always caution my clients against and try and steer them in another direction. Those women are getting honestly, they would be getting more than ten, way more than ten. At, mm. at the end, they're seeing their obstetrician every single week, and they are mm. getting an and that they've all got an ultrasound. They've all got like the sonographer machine um, within their office, and they're getting they're getting a look at that baby every single week. So that's more than yeah. That's over the course of pregnancy. That's more than yeah. once per month. And and if we think about um, that sensitivity to radiation, like um, first trimester and last trimester, we should be really minimising that. Um, embryo slash fetuses exposure to radiation well in the first trimester there's often a lot um a lot of ultrasounds because i don't know like you said they start at sort of six weeks and and do them semi-regularly and then again in that final trimester where they are just absolutely so sensitive to radiation it's not recommended to fly it's not recommended to to really expose them to any if you can the those ones that are in that private system are just getting inundated with that mm -hmm. And there was one more thing I was going to say on this. Oh, yeah. So if you're being encouraged to have these ultrasounds all the time, it's usually because they're checking, again, this is coming back to the pathologizing of pregnancy, looking for things that could be wrong or could be a variation of normal. And something else really important to know about ultrasound is that the variability of the measurements and the weight that they, that they can gather the range is so big. Like there's for in terms of the measurement of the baby, it can be two centimeters bigger or two centimeters smaller than what the ultrasound is coming up with, you know, the number. And so if you're being told, oh, your baby's really too big to push out, there's no guarantee at all that that is an accurate number. Same with the monitoring of the amniotic fluid. All of these things, there's so much variability in and inaccuracies in what the ultrasound can actually tell us. So I think sometimes we get into this um, train of thought of thinking that it's super accurate and, and to believe everything that is on the scan. And more times than not, and this happens to many friends, you know, they're told something is up with the baby, something's not looking quite right. They then are... Um, advised to have more and more and more tests and to be monitored closely and this has happened more than I can think of at least five friends that have all had similar experiences too like um, okay one that comes to mind is they were told that the baby has too much fluid around the brain and that's looking really not great and so we're going to keep 
a really close eye and have a have a lot of scans and over the next few weeks or whatever. And what that created for the mum was so much stress and turmoil and, you know, just so much um, hardship. And, you know, lo and behold, the baby turned out to be perfectly fine. There was no problem with fluid on the brain at all. And we have to think, what was the effect of that stress and that, yeah, added anxiety from the mother? What, what good does that do for her and the baby? What effect does that have on her baby, you know? And unless you're um, going to get an abortion mid-pregnancy, what's <laughs> the point of knowing something is wrong or I'm not even, I don't even want to say wrong, but something yeah. is different with the baby? Like wouldn't you rather have a blissful, beautiful pregnancy, bonding with your baby intuitively, and then if the baby is born and something is different, then you deal with it then. You know, mm. there's nothing that's going to happen through the pregnancy that you can do. Control, yeah. That you can control that's going to improve the outcome of the birth or the baby's health. Absolutely nothing can be done. And yeah. so when I say it doesn't, ultrasound doesn't improve outcomes, that's what I mean. They can't do anything while you're pregnant to improve your baby's health when it's born, right? Unless mm. you're going to choose to have, you know, a termination which, you know, no judgment around that. And, of course, like each and every circumstance is, you know, to their own. But for most women, they're not considering having a termination <laughs> mid-pregnancy. And so, yeah, it's just I really want to implore people to think about this stuff a little bit more deeply, scratch the surface and do your own research because, yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. Well, just quickly, anecdotally, again, from all of my clients, that, that those experience that experiences that you just told are just absolutely so common. I mean, so many clients will come back and tell me, oh, they told me he was looking too big or, like you said, the amniotic fluid was looking too low and so X, Y, Z happened after that. So it's the grooming again and I think, you know, We've probably and it's all under the it. guise of safety. And mm. these, these early interventions are not in themselves safe. No. Even when it comes to the tests and the, you know, that stuff they make you drink for the diabetes tests and the flu shots they want you to get throughout pregnancy. Like, these are not necessarily safe or healthy. No. Hey, it's Amanda and I'm here to fill you in on where to go to get started on living your best life yet. Paths to You is my online membership where I weave together the teachings of yoga and Ayurveda to guide you back to your true nature, your best self. It's the most affordable way to receive all of my online workshops. There's everything from detoxing and doshas, sleep and sex, women's cycles, and the corresponding yoga practices that go alongside the information shared so that you can truly embody your unique expression of health and vibrancy. There's also a really special 40-day path included that walks you through the inner work of living with more passion, power, and purpose. So to get started with your seven-day free trial, head to the Paths to You website linked in the show notes. And now, back to the episode. Okay, let's pivot to the cascade of interventions. Okay. 
Unless you want to say more about ultrasounds. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that that's enough. Um, so do you want me to explain the cascade of intervention? Yeah, why don't you just lay down what is like the typical one plus one equals two of how it, t- how it generally rolls out for most women when you get on that induction train? Yeah, okay, that's a good idea because I think the most common outcome, like I had a client recently and we – you know, she had had fertility issues, um, she had had failed IVF cycles, she had PCOS and IBS, got both of those conditions under control, so to speak. She conceived naturally. Um, we straight away had a conversation as soon as she conceived about birth. She had um, had family members that had had a C-section, also had family members that had had a home birth. She was not um, wedded to anything, but she definitely wanted to have, you know, as natural as possible, definitely wanted vaginal. We continued to catch up throughout her pregnancy. We always sort of touched back into that. She was going through the public system. She was part of a midwifery care program. So she was being cared for by midwives. So being cared for by women, not being cared for by an obstetrician. And, um, at the end of the day, she was coerced into an induction at the hospital during labour or or even maybe slightly prior to that. So Pre-labor. It, yeah, even with all of that knowledge and even with all of that desire, as soon as she sort of entered into that system, you know, pre-labour, she was coerced into an induction. And which, like, I'll just say here, this is why the role of a doula has become really popular lately because if your husband can't do it for you or your partner can't do it for you or you don't have, you know, someone else that's going to be um, attending your birth with you, you actually need somebody on your team who's going to advocate for you. And as the birthing person, you're not necessarily going to be able to do that for yourself, but you need someone who's going to protect you from the system. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. So coming back to what happens So just to sort of give, this is, I mean, the cascade of intervention starts even, like we've said, prior to um, labour. Labour. But once we're in labour, it really ramps up. And especially if we've been induced, which I think is the pathway through to all the other interventions. So when we are labouring naturally, our uterus is contracting and those contractions are painful. But our body is also releasing other hormones that provide relief and it's giving us breaks between those contractions. But when we are induced, we are given that pitocin or syntocin, which is the synthetic version of oxytocin, and it doesn't have just, you know, like in all other aspects of anything, Mother Nature knows best and it doesn't have the intuition to be able to create the space between the contractions. So what happens is instead of having a really painful contraction and then having a couple of minutes grace or reprieve to recover from that contraction, you get nonstop contractions. And anyone that's actually experienced labour would know that that's unbearable, that the only way that you can bear the contractions is because they don't last forever. Right. And, and they build up naturally. They build yes. from being, you know, less intense to more intense. Whereas as soon as you get the pitocin in your system, the contractions are coming as hard and as fast as the body can stand. And, and so, so 
Yeah. Go on, Sarah. So, you know, at that point you're not in a state of natural labour. And actually I have said to a lot of my clients, if you're considering being induced, then maybe, and this is so controversial, I can't believe I'm even going to say that, but maybe consider a C-section because it's really painful and you're going to end up with other things happening. So for a lot of women, the pain is unbearable. At that point, if they can, they'll ask for an epidural. So an epidural is where they're being um, basically paralysed, temporarily paralysed from the waist down. Um, so, And often then labour slows down. And sometimes it slows down to the degree that they, you know, get out the heart rate monitor, the Doppler or whatever, and then they decide, oh, we're not happy with how the baby's looking. We need to do a C-section. So you've already gone into C-section land. And in, in addition to that, if you've had that epidural, then at some point they might intervene by the baby might be down the birth canal far enough, but maybe labour isn't happening as fast as they would like it to happen. And then they're looking at an episiotomy where they're cutting you from the bottom of your vulva down to um, your perineum. So basically cutting you from vulva to anus um, or, you know, tearing that does require stitching. So all of those things are potentially just as traumatic and damaging to the body and the psyche as having a C-section. And so, yeah. and there's and, a few other things that can happen along the way that are kind of a more minor, but like if you're not um, going into spontaneous natural labour on the right timeline, according to the OB, then you're going to be offered a stretch and sweep, which is where the doctor will be manually stretching the cervix to, in the hopes of inducing labour, they might you know, if you're at the hospital, again, things aren't progressing at the right timeline, then you might have your waters broken. So many different things that are interruptions to the natural process of birth and the natural intelligence of the body. There's so many reasons why these things happen. And it's all to do with the very intricate play of hormones that are guiding the flow of labour. Yeah. And I mean, when I hear that people have been induced, and I mean, you know, every every birth journey is, you know, unfolding as it's meant to unfold, but a lot of times that baby wasn't ready to come out yet, right? you know, and, you know, the reason it's so hard for that baby to come out, even with those hormones pushing him out, which is why so many of them end in C-section or forceps or, you know, vacuums or mm-hmm. and or episiotomies is because that baby is not ready to come out. Labor is meant to start naturally. And when we're starting. And they might not be ready for so many different reasons that we just yeah. do not understand quite yet. Or they might not be in the right position. Or. Yeah. Yeah, there's just so many things. And what is the rush? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, the typical way that, just in case listeners don't know, aside from getting the uh, Pitocin through an IV into your system, which would happen, obviously, if you're already at the hospital. But if you're going through the private sector, what typically is kind of mapped out is that you'll come in at nighttime and they'll put a kind of balloon in your cervix and that balloon inflates gradually throughout the night. So they'll give you the, put the balloon in, I can't remember the proper name, but it's essentially like a little balloon. Pop that in your cervix, give you a sleeping pill, you go to sleep, we'll wake up in the morning and get things cracking, right? And so that in itself is artificially 
stimulating and stretching the cervix open before we are actually ready to go there. There's just, yeah, I mean, there's just so many things wrong with the way that we're eventually, or the way that we're grooming and and allowing the cascade of intervention to occur, isn't there? Yeah. If you want to learn more about this, um, there's a, a woman, amazing woman called Dr. Sarah Buckley, who you can find. She has some great books and heaps of amazing online resources. So if this is your jam, definitely check her out. Perhaps we should talk quickly about post-birth interventions as well, because I think maybe during birth and certainly established labour, like you said, and I wholeheartedly agree with your comments around the um, necessity for there to be an advocate for you, you are not capable of making any rational decisions and nor Mm -hmm. should you be expected to. And so Mm -hmm. you can, from the moment that you are in any form of established labour, you are just in a cave and it's just it's not possible for you to be making rational thoughts and decisions and it's the same post-birth you know and so immediately after birth is another time that you know particularly if you're in a hospital or you're in a private institution that they descend upon you and your baby and will subject you and your baby to a whole lot of things that if you haven't given it thought and I guess put some maybe rules around it or or given given some conditions around it you're just you're going to acquiesce because you're not going to be in a sort of rational state like composed state now you know often post-birth you know depending on the trauma obviously that that can be you know affecting you but even if you've had a relatively intervention free birth you're still going to be in a state of um fatigue and sort of a blend of fatigue and ecstasy with all of the oxytocin Mm -hmm. you're certainly not in any state to decide whether or not you want the baby to be immediately washed or um pricked with a pin on the bottom of its heel or um, given an oral or um, intravenous dose of vitamin K or hepatitis, is it B? It's B, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the one that only basically the only risk groups are sex workers and intravenous drug users. So pretty sure your baby isn't one of those. But um, so, do you want to talk about some of those um, post-birth interventions? Yeah, yeah. Just as you kind of like rattled them off, I was kind of thinking. And I'm not sure how much I've shared in detail when I've talked about my birth story on this podcast, but as listeners would know, if you've listened to that episode, you'll know that I wound up with a quote-unquote emergency C-section, which I don't actually think was an emergency. It was the result of interruptions that happened throughout my home birth. So when I was on that table about to be wheeled in for surgery, which of course was my plan Z, I didn't actually even consider that that would actually happen. Um, there were a few things that I was really, really strongly telling the doctors that this is what I want and, you know, let's make sure this all happens. And so first of all is not taking, okay, which there's like, what order should we go in? Okay. So cord clamping, delayed cord clamping is a phrase that's thrown around, um, in the medical system, but that delay takes it from being immediate to 30 seconds after birth. So not really a delay at all. Um, I was lucky in Bali that 
because of the way that the system is here that they agreed to let me keep the placenta attached. Um, what else can we talk about? Skin to skin is another one that's really, really important. I think this is actually uh, recognised within hospitals and they do allow mothers to have skin to skin with the baby, but that's not until the baby has been washed, usually with some kind of weird toxic soap, uh, weighed, like you said, the prick on the on the heel, the vitamin K shot, all of these things that are so unnecessary. Your baby does not need to be weighed right away. That doesn't change anything. doesn't need to be washed right away. Ayurveda, we say, like, the baby shouldn't actually be washed in water, like maybe, you know, wiped down with, like, a soft cloth or something but not washed for the first 10 days that um, meconium on the skin is actually really really important for their microbiome to to start building now that they're in the world and exposed to all of these you know microbial little things that that they're so vulnerable to you know they've been in the cozy womb for 10 months protected through your belly protected you know everything's been filtered and now they're suddenly out breathing air you know, exposed to all of the craziness that is in our world, especially if you're in a hospital. My God, the first thing they're going to be seeing is like fluorescent lights and plastic on their skin and Mm. all of the things. So anyway, skin to skin is really important. What else? What else did they Well, I just want to say, I I want to say a few things here. So firstly, about, about those things, I want to say, just to come back to those injections. So, you know, if you really want to have the vitamin K injection, then really you should be having it orally, um, which you can request to have because the immunisation that's um, injected into their bloodstream has the adjuvants in it and it has um, aluminium and I think it also has, I think most of them actually have mercury. It's a different form of mercury. They call it like ethyl mercury now, but it's still basically mercury. So it's still heavy metal. It's a heavy metal. So basically you are exposing your minutes-old child to toxins to degrees that grown adults would not be able to process. So and that's so that's vitamin K. Um, and then with the hepatitis B, so the only known groups that are at risk for hepatitis B, like I said, are sex workers intravenous drug users and first-line responders, so paramedics, um, doctors. And if you are one of those three categories, you'll know about the risks to your baby with Hep B. Exactly. But for the vast majority of parents are not those two. And then I'm pretty sure that your baby is not going to the next shot of Hep B, I think is about when they're around 10, between 0 and 10. They're probably not going to be a sex worker. They're probably not going to be an intravenous drug user. And I'm pretty sure nobody is employing a paramedic that's 10 years old. So there is <laughs> literally zero risk for mm-hmm. those less than an hour old humans that have no liver, right. no established immune system, totally vulnerable to their external environment. It is the worst possible time. Like, I mean, I would argue that the seven-week injections are also as bad, but the, those two are the worst. We should not be giving those to our babies. And 
you know, in, ter- in terms of that capitalization and industrialization of medicine, there is a story that um, that the pharmaceutical companies basically, you know, saw that there was a profit being made by injecting those um, at-risk group babies from the sex workers and the intravenous drug users and decided that it would be obviously more financially advantageous to just make it a blanket rule that all babies are injected with it. So the reason that all babies are injected with it has nothing to do with um, risk outcomes. It has a million percent to do with profit margins for the pharmaceutical companies. So that one just, that doesn't even need explaining any more than that. That one doesn't make Mm -hmm. any sense at all. Well, as soon as you check into the hospital, you, you know, you're going to sign some paperwork and inside of that paperwork is consent to all of these things. You don't have to. This is all optional. No one can make you give your baby these injections. These are all up to us to be discerning and to take responsibility for our, our birth and our baby, you know. I think some of them, I think this is where it gets a bit shady, is that I think some of them actually just don't actually get consent until after the birth in some of those hospitals. Like I know in the birthing centres they'll ask you beforehand, like what do you want, what don't you want? But I'm pretty sure that some of them are just checking with you after. And that's that's what I'm saying. Like no one is in um, a state at that point, most women that are capable. And the other thing I wanted to say that we haven't really said, but we have talked about it in other episodes, like certainly probably in the third trimester episode, um, is that when you get exposed to the cascade of intervention and you end up with those interventions, what happens is you're interfering with the natural flow. So if you have induced labour and you weren't in labour, then your body is not producing those hormones naturally. And the cascade of those hormones are the oxytocin is the precursor to the prolactin. The prolactin is what drops down the milk. And I have the perfect example of that just this week. My client was being groomed for induction. She was pretty much promised by her obstetrician that he wouldn't give her a C-section. There ended up being something risky about the baby that they decided to book her in for a C-section because they were worried about something that they saw under ultrasound, of course, not surprising. And now she's she's booked in to see me this week, actually, because she hasn't been able to produce milk. So she's not able to feed her baby. Mm-hmm. And she um, messaged me and she was like, I need a formula. Tell me which formula to get. And so I went, oh, I'm sure there's one that's okay. And I had a quick look at all of the formulas available and like looked within the parameters that I'd be looking for. There's not a single formula out there that doesn't have um, industrial seed oils in in it. Mm. They have all sorts of other rubbish toxins in them. So when you acquiesce to the cascade of intervention, what you're ultimately also doing, and this is what I try and really emphasize to my pregnancy clients, is it's not just the pain of birth or the inconvenience of some um, interruption to the vaginal slash vulval area. It's actually like how it can and often does determine what the quality of your relationship with your baby is going to be like in those first couple of weeks. I had another really good friend that ended up with a C-section and she said that when her baby girl was first born and put in her arms, she said she felt nothing. She felt nothing. Mm-hmm. She had no connection to her. Whereas Because she was numb. No, because she of wasn't course. producing oxytocin. Because mm-hmm. you only produce oxytocin when the baby goes through the birthing canal and when you've had that 
the natural cascade of those hormones. So she didn't feel that hormone that is designed to make you fall in love with your baby and connect with it. And, and so she couldn't. Safe. Exactly. And so she couldn't produce milk and she felt nothing when she looked at this weird little baby. And Which so, is so demoralising for mums and I can't even begin to imagine how difficult it is to have a, you know, a challenging breastfeeding experience but it's no fault of the mother you know it's only a natural or an obvious cause and effect of all of these interruptions through the labor process they yeah they disrupt this super delicate hormonal flow like you've been talking about I mean I I have a kind of an example from India the listeners of the podcast will know that I've spent a lot of time in India and in Kerala which is in the south it's the richest state they also have incidentally the highest rate of cesarean in the country but many of the hospitals and this I think is common in most developing countries in South America I know it's also a thing and probably here in Indonesia as well but the formula companies are actually in cahoots with the hospitals and so they have kind of an agenda to separate the babies from the mothers just to the point where their milk will dry up or you know not kick in around that third day and so to interrupt the flow of prolactin suddenly they are reliant on formula in India they go oh yeah no worries that's fine we're going to give you um, the first six months of formula free or maybe it's six weeks I can't remember Um, and then of course you're hooked then if you've been feeding your baby formula for six weeks you're not going to suddenly start producing breast milk so then you're a loyal customer to that formula company for the rest of your you know, breastfeeding time. It's so corrupt. That is just, yeah. And, and I mean, we like to think of that happens over there in those third world countries far, far away from us. We don't have that. But the same sort of capitalistic forces are happening here. It's just, it's more subtle, you know, Um, but it's, it is those same sorts of things are happening here. And well, so, we have to, like I said at the very top of the episode, we have to remember that hospitals run as a business model. They're not uh, not for profit. And so they need, it's like if you're thinking about it like a restaurant, you can't just have your one table sitting there all night and potentially like through till breakfast. You <laughs> need those tables, you need those hospital beds to be turned over every 12 hours, get them in, get them out. So as soon as you get that induction, you're on a 12-hour clock. Or even like we saw on your um, birthing story, as soon as you checked in, luckily you did have a really textbook birth and everything was fine, but you were were on the clock and you checked out exactly 12 hours after you checked in. I know. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I guess we should probably round out to recommendations in a minute, but to make a general recommendation that isn't, you know, specific to a person or a a book per se my recommendation for all of my clients and some of them don't like this and some of them resist this and and they do it and I accept that and I'm still there for them and we'll support them you know post-birth and you know during and and of course without any judgment but my recommendation is avoid an obstetrician avoid the privatized system because that is where that capitalistic drive that sort of monetization and medicalization of birth is the most powerful 
And I see that time and time again. Every single client that chooses an obstetrician ends up with a cascade of intervention and ends up with, uh, you know, a post-birth period that is harder than it needs to be. Yeah, I mean, we didn't even touch on all of the complications that can come with having a C-section, but, I mean, you can find that information really um, obviously online anyway. Just do a quick yeah. Google search and you'll see. And maybe but, we can talk yeah. about it in another episode because obviously we have a lot to say about this. Yeah, topic. I mean, if you think about that 45% in the private sector of, yeah, cesarean sections and what the actual stat should be, which is around... Five percent, maybe generously ten percent. I mean, we just have to follow the money. That's that's all there is to it. Okay, let's pivot into recommendations. I just have one, and it's a great documentary. I first saw this documentary when I was doing a prenatal yoga teacher training, like many many moons ago. I think this is actually what got me started on being obsessed with birth. It's called The Business of Being Born and it's pretty old and it's it's uh, produced by Wiki Lake, if you remember her from the 90s, but it still stands up. It's so, so awesome. And if you just want to kind of like crack into this world of industrialised birth, no place to start, you can find it on Amazon. And I, you've actually already referred to my recommendation and it is, so it is a book by Sarah Buckley. It's called Gentle Birth. I know she's so good. Called Gentle Birth, Gentle Mothering. And the foreword is actually written by another amazing birth author called Ina Mae Gaskin, who Mm. is sort of like a bit of a stalwart in the natural labor midwifery circles as well. But yes, it's a really, it's really good. It's got, I mean, it's, probably been updated the version that I've got is like probably sort of mid 2000s but I'm sure she's updated versions but it's got all of the sort of statistics and information scientific as well as you know ancient and she's wisdom. done a lot of podcast interviews so yeah she's yes awesome. she's amazing so I think and when this episode drops um I will do a little screenshot of my audible and all of the books that I listened to while I was pregnant about all of this stuff So I'll post that on my Instagram when this episode goes live. Awesome. And I think that that is a wrap. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to the Elevate podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review so we can keep bringing these conversations to you all.